That's on now? Yeah, there we go. On December 9th of 2018, so this year, Pastor Wang Yi was arrested by Chinese government authorities. He, along with 100 people from his church congregation, the charges were attempting to subvert the state power. See, Pastor Yi in China lives in a world where there are two types of churches, registered churches and unregistered churches. Registered churches are churches that kind of fill out the paperwork and are allowed to worship as Christian churches so as long as they kind of fit within the patterns and you know, boundaries that the government has set up. Unregistered churches are illegal, and Pastor Wang Yi belong to, belongs to an unregistered church because he has the belief that the state does not have the authority or the right to tell people how they should worship the God, so as long as it's not hurting other people. Pastor Yi was not just a pastor, though. He was actually, in his prior kind of decade of living before being a pastor, was a lawyer, a constitutional scholar, and someone who spent the last decade uh, fighting for human rights in China. So he was putting the spotlight on the issue of human rights and asking the Chinese government to do what they say they were going to do. He knew the time would come, however, when he would be arrested, because there's only so long you can criticize your government for human rights issues before they come for you. So he wrote a letter And in this letter, he wrote to his congregation wanting to encourage them, and hopefully many other people as the letter would spread. He gave it to a few of his closest friends and said, if I get arrested and you don't hear a word from me for 48 hours, then deliver this letter to the church. Now, the letter is incredible. I encourage you all to read it. You can just Google search pastor's letter, Wang Yi, Y-I is how you spell his last name. But I wanted to focus on some part of the letter, a short part of it. Pastor Wang Yi says, as a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. And that last line is what I wanna focus on, to testify of another world, because by Necessity, if you believe and point to a better world, a more perfect world, by implication, you are saying that the current world is not as it ought to be. Now, in some places, that's not a big deal, but in some places, to declare the present world a place that is not as it ought to be is seen as a direct criticism of the powers that be. And so, Pastor Yi knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew that he was a threat, so as long as he would continue to practice Christianity freely and point to human rights atrocities of all people, despite their religious background. He knew this struck fear into the government. He wrote in the letter, I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Now that alone is pretty powerful a church that is no longer afraid of it. He goes on. All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that. In all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. So the language is, is that there is a world, a very real world that we live in. 
But the way we live in the present world should not only attempt to merely make this world a better place, which is very important, but it should be done in such a way that it's pointing people to another world, a world that is even more real than the temporary one we currently occupy. Now, this language that he's using is very similar to the language that's used 2,000 years ago by the first followers of Jesus and those who are brought up in the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, you have two worlds. You have the olam hazeh, that's the current present world, and then there's the olam haba, the world to come. In the present world, olam hazeh, there is evil and suffering and brokenness and all the things that we experience the present world, but there is a hope in the olam haba, a world to come, a world that God has created for those who would follow him, a world that is better than any earthly world or any earthly government could ever establish. And so this is where it's interesting because the very language that Pastor Yi is using to describe what he's going through, is the very language that some of the first followers of Jesus used. And when we get into the Christmas story, we see this concept being fleshed out. The Christmas story contains what we'll call signs and images and pictures of a future reality. There are things that take place in the birth of Jesus that aren't merely just cute little stories, but they are meant to point you to the Olam Haba, a greater world, a world yet to come. So it's as if there's present things that we experience that can ultimately point to a future reality, a more perfect reality. So I want to share with you today briefly is just a few of these things that take place in the Christmas story. And if you, you've been a Christian your whole life, you've heard the Christmas story a lot of times. And if you're new to Christianity or not a Christian, maybe you're not familiar with these stories. But there's these elements, these components, pictures, images that point us to God's future world and his kingdom. So something we're familiar with, the story of the shepherds. And in the same region, region, there were shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now shepherds, this word shepherds, I want you to focus on that word on the left. You don't even have to read it. This is what I want you to focus on. Poimenos, and poimenos can be translated pastor or shepherd. But when you picture a pastor or a shepherd, the image that comes to mind is not the image that you need to see. Because one, we're not talking about pastors, we're talking about shepherds, but the way we picture shepherds is not necessarily accurate. Because we have like, and I'm not knocking this because this is like super good, they don't make them like they used to, but like Charlie Brown Christmas special. Like if there's a shepherd in Charlie Brown, they probably got the poor right, so they let, they let that, uh, what's, what's the kid who's always dusty, dirty, it's like, you don't have enough money, you got Linus playing the shepherd, but you like Linus because even though he doesn't have enough money, he's like a humble person, you just want to like him. But Poimenos, shepherds, 2,000 years ago, you wouldn't be thinking of someone who is poor that you want to hang around with that's a good, humble character. Shepherds were not only poor, they were ceremonially and ritualistically unclean, and they were morally questionable. So what do I mean by that? 
One, we get the, we get the, the understanding that they're poor, but why do we know shepherds are poor? Because no one wanted to be a shepherd, because being a shepherd made your very vocation put you in a place where you were ritualistically unclean so you couldn't worship correctly. So if you're in Israel and you were unclean, you couldn't go into the temple, you couldn't do the religious experience like everyone else. So they, you were unclean, a social outcast. Well, who would want that job? Either the poorest of the poor would have to do it or someone who was, the third category, morally questionable. It'd be like, a shepherd? That makes you unclean. You can't even worship God appropriately. Why would you do that? You must not care about the living God of Israel. And so you're seen as ritualistically unclean. You're seen as morally questionable. And the other important thing is that people of the ancient world didn't just look or look down on poor people in a manner that's a little bit rude. I mean, we all have had two to 3,000 years of the Judeo-Christian ethic teach us that all people are made in the image of God. Therefore, we're all equal. But that's not the default position of most people in most places at most times. The default position in most cultures is, well, poor people must be, must be lazy or something's wrong with them or they've done something wrong to deserve that. Or the gods or goddesses are against them because if the gods or goddesses were for this person, surely they wouldn't leave them in this state of agony. And so hopefully, although this is not always demonstrated by our actions, two or 3,000 years of a Judeo-Christian ethic telling us all people are made in the image of God and worthy of human dignity, hopefully we've, we're uprooting that. That's yet to be clear, though. But I know for certain, in Jesus' day, shepherds, poor, it's either because they're not good workers, they're stupid, they're ritualistically unclean, so they're choosing not to worship the living God in an appropriate manner, morally questionable. And so these are the last people in the world who you would think who would be invited to witness the king of Israel's birth. And so what's taking place in this story? What God is doing at the start of the birth of his son is letting something occur in the Olam Hazeh, the present world, that is ultimately pointing to a future world, a future world where socioeconomic division does not exist where the poor and the rich are at the same table. Because in our present world, the social outcast is not invited to the table. In God's world, the table is prepared for them. Something takes place in the present that points to something that can occur in God's world, in God's kingdom. There's more with the shepherds, though. It says, suddenly, there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So you got a picture like there's an angel talking and then all of a sudden, um, we don't know how much, a multitude of this heavenly host begin to sing. Now, to the modern ear, like for real, what's a, what's a host, a heavenly host? That's like the, like the person who greets you at the door when you, you come over. Host... Stratia, in the original language, it means army. So there is a multitude of a heavenly army that shows up. 
And what occurs when there's multitudes of heavenly armies showing up on enemy territory? Not shots fired, not guns. When the heavenly armies come into enemy territory, they don't bring the bombs and tanks. What do they do? They sing. They sing. And what do they sing? They sing about peace. And who do they sing it over? Shepherds, the least likely to receive this. In our present age, Olam Hazeh, when we send in the multitude of armies into enemy territories, they are there to still kill and destroy, to obliterate, right? When God sends in his heavenly host, they sing songs, peace. It's something occurring in the present world that is pointing you to something that only God can bring about in the world to come. It's important to know that the current Caesar of the time also said he brought peace to the entire world. The Caesar claimed to bring peace to the entire world, Pax Romana, but he did it through the sword. God is doing it through choirs. It's another image. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east coming to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now it's confusing because I just, it just said wise men, right? There's, there's some wise men. And when we always think of the wise men because of some songs, we think of how many? Three, but we don't know how many. And what's even more confusing is we don't only think of three wise men, but we also uh, sometimes think of kings because there's Christmas songs that talk about we three kings, right? But the actual word isn't wise men or kings. It's magoi or magi. And what are magi? Magi are people who look up at the stars and try to predict the future. They read the stars to discover the future. Now, what's crazy is in the Old Testament, this act is strictly forbidden. Like, it's clear in the Old Testament, don't practice this stuff. So, who's being invited into the birth of Jesus? Pagan practitioners of forbidden practices. People who should not even be allowed. Even more importantly, where do they come from? The East. Now, what's the East symbolically in Scripture? Because the direction of east has symbolic significance. When Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden in the Adam and Eve story, where do they go? East. So when you go east in Genesis, it means you're going into more and more sin and disobedience. And when you go west, you're heading back the direction of the promised land. Also, what else is in the east? Babylon. The, the literal city and the archetypical city in the Bible for all evil. The city of evil. And so when you go east, bad. Go west, promised land. That's the symbolic significance of it. So what happens when you have pagan practitioners of forbidden practices who worship multiple gods who aren't ethnically Jewish being invited to the birth? It's God's way of saying, yes, I am the king of Israel, but I am a God for all people, of all ethnicities, of all color." Now, again, you may think, okay, the Bible teaches us that, like, God loves everybody and racism is wrong. No big deal. Like, you don't understand how radical a claim it is to say all people, 
despite color, religious creed, ethnicity are equal. The idea that all people are made in the image of God is not the default position of human beings. The default position of human beings is to say, my tribe is better than your tribe, my ethnicity is better than your ethnicity. When ancient people went to war with each other, you can read about in their poetry. It's like, then we went and conquered our enemies, and the enemies are the people of a different ethnicity, tribe, or nation, and as they kill them, they write poetry about how their gods or goddesses aided them in victory over the disgusting, horrible, fill-in-the-blank ethnicity. So it's like, it's what we do by default. Like, we may pride ourselves in thinking, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not racist. Well, one, you've had 3,000 years of Judeo-Christian ethics and stories trying to uproot that sin in your heart. And more importantly, when you're honest with yourself, you by nature make natural divisions. Me, you. So when you sing the kids' song, the children's song, Jesus loves the little children, you have no idea the profound words that you are uttering. Jesus loves the little children, all of them, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And so at Jesus' birth, magi from the east are invited. It's as if to say, in the present world, olam hazeh, that even now, God has given you a picture of the world to come, because in the world to come, all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship Jesus. And the first followers of Jesus were mostly Jewish, but in 2,000 years, right now, there are millions upon millions of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that profess Jesus as Lord. It's a thing done in the present that's pointing you to a future reality, to another world, to God's world. And then the, this is why people think there's three kings, because there's three gifts. Now, I don't know if the Magi had thought, thought about like symbolic significance of the three gifts, but I do know that very, very early on, the early church clearly saw symbolic significance in the three gifts that were given by the Magi. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They said that gold was because the newborn king was royalty. So gold represented royalty. Frankincense represented either something priestly or deity, godhood, in other words, because the frankincense would be used in temples by priests to worship gods. And so they were saying the the magi in their culture would be used to offering this to a god in in a priestly temple service. And then myrrh was what people were embalmed with after death. So the early church said they gave them that because it's pointing to his future mission of death. And so we can't be certain of those, but the early church clearly, very early, saw symbolic significance in the three gifts. Last one. I mean, there's dozens of these. Swaddling bands. What's up with this? So in Jesus' day for the babies, they had these long strips of cloth bands that they would wrap up the babies with, you know, so they're real, real tight. Now we have, we don't use bands, we have like, like, you know, I don't know what they're called, but they're like, little kids sleeping bag straight jackets with a zipper and like you tighten them up real tight and if you're a new parent I'm a, I've I got three little ones you know how it is you got to get it just right and if they can wiggle their like they if they can wiggle they'll find a way out and if they find a way out in the middle of the night you're getting up and you're starting the whole process over again 
they did the same thing, but with swaddling bands, and they'd wrap them up real tight. They also thought that if you didn't keep the bones perfectly straight and at good angles, that their bones wouldn't grow straight. So it was like even more important for them. Got them swaddling bands real tight. Now, something interesting, though. The text says that the manger and the swaddling bands are actually a sign. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's going to be a sign for you. Now what's a sign? A sign is something that stands in place of something else. It exists to point you to something beyond itself. So a stop sign isn't meant just to show you red and some letters. It's meant to communicate something. It's pointing to something beyond itself. It's telling you to stop. Somehow the manger and the swaddling cloths function as a sign for the shepherds. Now, we know from some Jewish documents dated at the second century that the region around Jerusalem for several miles or more had lots of shepherds and had lots of uh, goats and lambs in the area. But what the documents say, the early documents communicate, is that the majority of the lambs in that area next to Jerusalem were used not for, for eating, but they were used for sacrifices in the temple. Now that, that makes logical sense because lambs that are used as sacrificial lambs are supposed to be without blemish. So you want to take some lamb on some like 400 mile journey and rush, you know, you want this lamb near Jerusalem. You want him close by to be a part of the sacrifice because the lambs need to be without blemish. Now, there's a location roughly six miles outside of Jerusalem right next to Bethlehem called Migdal Hader, literally translated Tower of the Flock. We know its location. Tower of the Flock exists right outside of Bethlehem. And the Tower of the Flock was a specific location that was especially focused on finding lambs without blemish so that they could be used as sacrifices in the temple. Now, at this location, there would have been shepherds. And one of the things we know that they did when they found lambs without blemishes, especially lambs identified at birth, that seemed to be the right type of stock early on that would produce a lamb without blemish, is the shepherds would identify them and wrap them in swaddling bands. Wrap it around it so to clearly distinguish the lambs from maybe a lamb with blemish. Now what's incredibly interesting is not only were these lambs marked off as lambs without blemish with swaddling cloth, is there would be another time in their life where they would be wrapped in swaddling bands. When the lambs were taken to the temple to be sacrificed, they were often wrapped up extremely tight in swaddling bands. Why? Because if the animal starts to freak or to panic, they don't want it to hurt itself. And so we don't know with certainty. We don't know. This is speculation at this point. But it could be that the sign that the shepherds are supposed to see is not just merely a baby 
in a manger, but they're supposed to see that this baby in the manger is somehow very much like those lambs without blemish that they take to be sacrificed. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical stories, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus in his public ministry, what does John the Baptist immediately call Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And God says, lambs and goats and bulls and ox, they don't, they don't take away sin. This sacrifice thing doesn't do anything to sin. They're like a foreshadow, a sign pointing to something beyond itself. God is not satisfied in the blood of bulls. He says that again and again in the Old Testament. And it's like the shepherds are supposed to see that this is the baby who will in the future take away the sins of the world. Now there's a reference to this tower of the flock, this location outside of Bethlehem in the book of Micah. Micah 4, 6 through 7, written a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven out and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock... That's that Hebrew phrase. That is this location we're talking about. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So even in Micah, a few hundred years earlier, there's something special. Now, even if these shepherds weren't from that exact location, I could tell you that the vast majority of lamb in that region, lambs that were used in that region were used for temple sacrifices. And so it's like, it, it's a sign in the present world that this child is more than just an ordinary child. This child is from another world. What would Jesus say at the end of his life when he's questioned by the authorities of his day? My kingdom is not of this world. And then he says, you know, if I wanted to, I could call down a bunch of angels and just wipe you all out. But God's angels show up and sing. They sing about peace. So what are all these things showing us? They are things that are happening in the Olam Hazay, the present world, that want us to fix our eyes on the future world, God's world. So the shepherds are poor, ceremonially unclean, and morally questionable. And in our world, the social outcast is not invited to the table. In God's world, the table is prepared for them. The armies show up, the heavenly host, the armies show up, but they don't fire guns, they don't drop bombs, they sing songs of peace over the shepherds. The magi are invited. Pagans, practitioners of forbidden ways, should not even be allowed in the area. They get invited. It's as if to say God's kingdom is for all people. Their three gifts have symbolic significance, pointing to the greater reality of who this child is. And the swaddling bands, we can't be certain, but there's good reason to believe that even in that act, there is a symbol and a sign pointing to the future mission of this baby, that he himself would be 
the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And in all of these things, there are actions, signs, images pointing us to another world. Pastor Yi would conclude his letter, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have been deprived, who, to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. And here's the important part. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Christ. So what's his letter about? What is the Christmas story about? It's about doing things in the present that matter precisely because the future matters. We are called to do nice things and good things, but not just to like make the world a little better place. If this world is all there is, it's fading and fleeting and will disappear before you know it. But we do things in the present not only to make the present better, but to point to a future reality, a world to come that God himself is preparing. And so for this Christmas season, as the worship team comes back up, my challenge to you is like, allow this to be your focus. Like really, how much of your time, energy, and anxious thoughts are directed to earthly problems Problems of this world that really aren't that big of a deal. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're late at night worrying about something, and then you tell yourself, this really isn't that big of a deal. I shouldn't be worrying about it this much. I give it to God. And then what do you do two minutes later? You begin to worry about it. Because we've all been raised in a culture that says, this world is the only world that matters. Christians are called to testify of another world. And when you understand the greater realities, it doesn't make your worries disappear, but it puts them in their proper context. Like, seriously, your uncle's not going to be that sad that you got him socks again. You don't have to worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. The world we live in is occupied with all kinds of problems. But if you're a Christian, you fix your eyes on the future, and you do good in the present, pointing to God's world to come. So may you fix your eyes on Christ and his kingdom. May you not be distracted by the things of this world. And may you spend all your time and energy doing the things that matter. As we transition, we're going to close with two songs. The first song is a song that we've uh, played in December if you attend um, regularly. So you've heard it. But for many of you, it will be new. And in this time, you can just, uh, A, read the lyrics, which are incredible. But two... Also say, God, where are my eyes focused? If they're focused just on earthly matters, focus my eyes on the things that are of ultimate value, of transcendent value. How can I, I use my life to make it matter, to testify of another world? So use this time to do that. And in doing so, you honor the Son of God because you place him at the place that is most worthy, most worthy of time and attention. Let's pray. Father God, uh, may we, in this short remaining time we have together, completely give you our attention. May you order our priorities. The things that give us anxious thoughts, they matter, but they don't matter as much as the big things. 
Help us to spend time and energy in this life on the things that matter precisely because you have prepared another world for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.